Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February 19th, 2014. This is episode 1305 of the Survival Podcast. And I've uh, got a great one for you today. I'm about to bring on the line in just a moment here a gentleman named Byron Joel who is uh, joining us very, very early in the morning for him from Australia. Uh, he's a permaculture educator, designer, teacher, and author. And uh, he's worked alongside people such as Jeff Lawton. And uh, he has an amazing story to tell. We're going to discuss humanity's future along with permaculture and humanity's future with plants uh, and how that applies to sustainability and security for us. And it's going to be a great interview But before that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? What are you going to get? Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. What else did you get from the Berkey Guy? Actually, you can get some really cool stuff from Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, other than Berkey's. He's actually got a great new long-term food storage long line called Survival Cave Food Storage. Really great pricing and interesting stuff. You might want to check that out as well. You can find Jeff's website at directive21.com. And if you're in need of a Berkey or Berkey parts, don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy. Get it from the Berkey guy. Why, why wouldn't you do that? He's, he's the only one that actually is the Berkey guy. Jeff the Berkey guy. Gleason, directive21.com. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. You know, long ago I had this sponsor. Uh, for silver and gold. Because I had to have one. Because you guys want to buy silver and gold, period. I needed a good sponsor for that. So, you know, I actually made space to take somebody. And they were a small business, and it was a good person. It was doing some good stuff, but she was kind of expensive. And uh, But I thought, well, to deal with a small company, that's what I'm going to have to do. That company got involved with a network marketing thing, where you, you trick your friends into buying overpriced silver so you can get some free silver and I ended I you know I say I fire sponsors and I think people don't believe me but she's one of two that got fired and I'll just leave the other one nameless for now and um, when I did that I'm like well there's this hole now so I started looking at you know who can I bring on that was actually more affordable and I found Monix and Atmex who had bought from bought from both of them is the most competitive in the market but I couldn't talk to the owners I couldn't talk to anybody really other than like you know a low level marketing clown and then I was approached by JM Bullion I'm like well who are you and he's like I'm the president my name's Michael I'm like you're the president so I look at his website and his site his prices are actually better in most instances than Monix and Atmex So when I knew I could talk to the owner of the company, get you guys better pricing and great service, I was happy to take JM Bullion as a sponsor. And you should check them out. If you have any need of silver or gold, uh, check them out today, jambullion.com. The best way to get to JM Bullion, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason and all our sponsors is to go to our website and click on the banners in the right-hand margin. Um, and remember, Jeff Berkey Guy Gleason and JM Bullion both have special deals for you guys as members of the Support Brigade if you're an MSB member. On that note, today's Member Support Brigade um, discount vendor of the day is actually a used-to-be sponsor. Uh, Rob with MERS-radio.com. It's M-U-R-S-radio.com. 
um, was a sponsor with us in the beginning. And as we raised our rates, not a lot really, but a little bit, it was just above what a small business like his with low margins could do. But he was still a great friend of the show, and he still offers a discount on 5% of all his gear uh, to members of the uh, MSB. And MERS Radio, I haven't talked about it in a long time, but it's really an awesome system. It allows you to have basically, think of them like walkie-talkies, right? So little handheld radios uh, that have, they use a frequency that's not anywhere near as used as, as frequently as like the GMRS family radio frequencies and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of an off the off the normal uh, frequency, but you don't need a license for it. It's not like ham. And anybody can use it. And actually, there's four frequencies. There's five frequencies and five sub frequencies. So just by going into one of the sub frequencies, which is easy to set on these radios, you can get to a position of don't consider yourself private communications. But there's probably not a lot of people listening to you if you get my drift. And they have a range of about a mile, so that limits that whole listening to what you're doing as well. Well, you can also put motion detectors into your mirror system. And that means that you can have your radios, you can have a base station sitting that's on all the time, you can have you know, locating sensors out on your property, and if somebody or something is messing around over in an area, you'll hear alert sector one, or alert sector two, or alert sector three, or alert sector four. And you can check out what's going on. It's kind of a nice thing to have. And if you are ever in a situation where you're dealing with people on your property that you don't want there, and you and maybe one other person or you alone have to go out there and check on them, If you had some cameras set up and a person in the house telling you what's going on and then you had the the alert sectors kind of narking them out to you with an earpiece in, you'd have a force multiplier that's pretty impressive for a low investment. Check it out today, MERS-radio.com. Um, kind of miss having Rob as a sponsor, honestly. He's got some great stuff. And, guys, he will help you if you need anything. Get in touch with him. He'll tell you what you need. Uh, he'll be happy to do that. He provides amazing customer service. Uh, and on that note, if you want that discount or you want the other two discounts I talked about today or you'd like discounts from like 40 different people uh, and you want to support the show, consider becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. You can just go to the website and click on Members of the MSB banner and you can become a member real easy. Just sign up. It's at 5 bucks a month or $50 a year. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty or Prior Service, along with first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, All of you guys qualify for a service discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line and tell me in one or two sentences about your service. And again, this is for active duty and prior service, not just retired. If you were a volunteer sheriff for a couple of years, I'll give you the discount. If you were a volunteer paramedic for a couple of years, I'll give you the discount. You just have to email me before, not after you join. All right. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And the episode is 1305, so I will take you back today in our history segment to the year 1305, and a name that almost everybody knows, especially after the movie was made, I guess 10 years ago or so, by Mel Gibson, Braveheart. This is not a good year for Braveheart. Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com has this to say, Braveheart loses his head and various other parts. King Edward I of England is not a man who frightens easily, but if anyone could make him feel uncomfortable, it would be Sir William Braveheart Wallace. King Edward has made a deal with the Scots to end the hostilities in exchange for Sir, Sir Wallace's unconditional surrender. It will be a friend that will betray him, Sir John Mentieth, 
is told that King Edward will only keep Wallace under house arrest. So after offering Wallace a place to stay, Menteith calls the English troops. Sir William Braveheart Wallace will become the second nobleman to be hung, drawn and quartered, and the first was the Prince of Wales in 1283. Six months later, Robert the Bruce will raise his flag and challenge England again. My take by Alex Shrugged. Alex Shrugged, of course, puts all these great segments together for us at TSP Wiki. He has two other segments you can read about if you want to get over there today. There'll be a link in the show notes, like always. But Alex says, It, may, it seems incredible that Sir John of Menteith could believe such a bald-faced lie. Yet his only excuse is that he was a phenomenal fool. No one records Sir Wallace's last words. So the yelling of freedom in the movie, there's no record of that. It's a little Hollywood license. But the proverb he quoted from his father is well known. So this might not have been his last words, but he did say this as he met the end of his life at some point along the way. I tell you truly, no gift is like to liberty. My son never live in slavery. And as we allow our government today to take more and more liberty, perhaps we should pause for a moment to hear those words a second time, free of all of Hollywood's glitz, and let them go into your very being and ask yourself, how much liberty do you really have? I tell you truly, no gift is like to liberty, my son never lived in slavery. And today we still fight for our liberty, but in this new world, there's a lot that we can do for liberty that was never available to people in the past. There's a lot of individual choices we can make to build liberty in our own lives, to deal with the systems around us when we have to, but in our personal lives, to be as libertarian and anarchist as we can. And the best practice I know to do just that is actually permaculture. Low energy inputs, high outputs, productivity, life-sustaining production. Once you can provide for yourself, it's a lot harder for government to tempt you into a deal like our buddy Sir John of Mentieth was. Because you don't need them. I'd like you to think about that today as we have a really interesting conversation with a guy I'm just going to call a new friend, flat out. I think that Byron and I are going to be good friends for a long time. I really like him a lot. Um, he's a great guy, and he's promised to send me some rare mesquite seeds. Actually, they're not rare where he is. They're just they're not mesquite. Uh, rare acacia seeds. They're just rare where I am. It's really hard to find certain acacia seeds. Anyway, he's got them growing all over the place. He's going to send me some. So uh, I'm glad to have met his acquaintance for more than one reason. And he is an awesome guy. Byron is a regenerative whole systems designer. He's a teacher, author, and consultant. He's exploring sustainable human systems. He has a diploma in horticulture and extensive experience in the fields of permaculture, land regeneration, environmental restoration, and ethnobotany. He has taught permaculture internationally alongside Jeff Lawton and has worked and lived on a number of functioning permaculture farms and educational facilities around the world, including Zaituna Farm, home of the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia. And with that, hey, Byron, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jack. Hey, um, you're you're on the line with us pretty early in the morning because you're all the way out in Australia. 
Yeah. Uh, and we're here to talk today about uh, permaculture as well. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into permaculture? Okay, yeah. I was um, a self-described plant nerd before I really got into permaculture. It kind of happened at the same time, but I was into horticulture um, some years ago now, growing up, knocking around with plants. And um, then I think I just I stumbled across a book back somewhere around 2000, and just started reading and reading and reading. And then, you know, the next logical step is to do the PDC, and um, it just went on from there. And, and you've actually worked with Jeff quite a bit. I My background with Jeff was in 2010. So I, I, I did my first PDC in 2004, and then a second in 2009. And then I saw the off, offer for the internship, at Zotuna Farm, the 10-week internship, which I took in 2010 um, as part, part of the second, I think it was the second internship they ever had at Zotuna. And I did the 10 weeks there, and that was, that was life-changing. Like, it was the first time in my life where I had had opportunity to completely indulge myself in a passion, right? So, like, sometimes you go to... You know, you go to a, a class here or a class there or you get a great job um, and you get to, you know, put your toe in the water of different things. But this was the first time I was living 24-7 for an extended period of time doing what I was absolutely passionate about and surrounded by like-minded people. And I left the internship a changed person. So I'm from the southwestern corner of Western Australia and Jeff's farm is in northern New South Wales on the kind of mid-east coast. So that was a huge move back and forth. But upon returning home from the internship, I knew I wanted to be back there. So I bugged Jeff until, <laughs> until he gave me a job. And then I flew my whole family. We moved, my wife and two children. We moved um, that whole distance. And we moved into the farmhouse next door to Zaytuna Farm where we lived while I worked for a year and a bit as nursery manager and woofer coordinator at Zaytuna, which was amazing. And in, in that time, you know, I just was inundated with amazing opportunities and exposure to ideas and thoughts and projects and students from all around the world and guest lecturers. And I went with Jeff to Morocco to help uh, co-teach the first PDC of a... Um, amazing permaculture project over there. Um, and then I left Zaytuna after about 12 months and went to the sister institute, PRI New Zealand, where for a pretty brief stint of about three or four months, I was nursery manager there as well. And then after that, moved back here to southwestern Australia again. Wow. Awesome. That's that's amazing. Um, uh, there's a lot I want to go forward there, but I want to back up for just a second because you said something that you and I have in common. You've taken more than one PDC. Yeah. And I haven't talked talk to many people who have done that. Um, yeah. I have to say that every time I've been through the process, I've gotten more out of it. Yeah. And I think that's unique about PDCs. Yeah. Did you have the same experience? Yeah, very much. I think it's it, due to the very nature of a PDC, I mean, they give you the outline, but you you are quite free to teach it how you how you will, and you know the, 
the nature and character of individual teachers and the site that you're on really comes across differently. I, I'd, I'd do another one now. I'd, there's, a, there's one coming up in Australia that that I would love to take soon. Um, you know, I don't necessarily need the, that information, but you do pick up different things every time. I think that the students you're around is is something that's always different too, and that you find that you learn almost as much at break time and after hours as you do during the course. Oh, there's there's a certain electricity that you get in the air when you get a bunch of permaculture passionate people together, um, especially those who haven't had the opportunity before to be exposed to other people with like mind, because most of us. You know, most of us feel like we're swimming against a current or walking uphill in the work we do or the opinions we express in lots of ways. The tide's turning slowly, but um, when you do finally get people together in a group, there is a real electricity and you often find that during the breaks and before class and after class, you, you are learning almost as, as much as during the class because the conversation is so rich and passionate. Yeah, I, I spoke at a PDC as a co-instructor a year and a half ago, I guess, not two years ago, somewhere in that range. And it was interesting that we had some people there as students that were probably two ladies that were in their late 60s that were like uber plant geeks. They knew the Latin name of any leaf you could hand them. Yeah. Uh, and But they really were just learning about permaculture for the first time. And then we had some young people, like 19, 20-year-old, two gals that were there together that were really optimistic, but almost a little overly optimistic. Well, all you have to do is this, and all you have to do is that. And you're like, well, yeah, but there's all these other functions that have to be taken care of within a system for this actually to work. And yeah. they were almost too optimistic. But then you could end up seeing like that, that almost grandmotherly instinct of these two old, older ladies kind of take charge of that uh, – that youthful ambition, and you can see some really amazing relationships formed in those periods of time. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I still, people who I consider my best friends today are those who I've met uh, PDCs and often in a kind of mentoring position in relation to me, you know, like older guys who've taken me under their wing and taught me, you know, things and skills and, and, and what have you, experiences that you just don't really get passed on nowadays from around, you know, circles of men and it's, um, yeah, if, if for anyone who hasn't taken a PDC because they're thinking, oh, you know, I've already read the books and, you know, I've got it down. I mean, money aside, cost aside, if you can afford it and time and money, I really recommend it because it's a, a, a valuable experience. I'd agree as long as you're in the right frame of mind. The way I put it in an article I wrote was there's two different things that happen for people at a PDC. One, and this is the, the, uh, the result you hope. You come out of it transformed, and you are become an eternal student of permaculture, and that's a status you never graduate from. You, no matter how many people you teach, yeah. you're a student for the rest of your life. Oh, the God. other person is the person that what they really want to know is, well, how do I transform just my backyard? That's all they're really concerned with. Yeah. And I don't think that person really is harmed by a PDC, but I think they might come away with it with, Gee, every answer I got was it depends. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do no. now, and yeah, why did I pay twelve hundred bucks for that? That person might be better off in like an intensive workshop. That's right. I would agree with you, and I guess I'm speaking with the bias of someone who's borderline obsessed with this stuff. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's that's really cool. But I, I I do like to point that out for people because I I don't think it's. I wish everybody would do it. 
but I don't know that everybody's ready for it. Yeah, like, there's a point in your life where you know, like, this is now what I want to do. And I think that when you hit that point, you should do whatever it takes to get it done. Yeah, I would agree. So, in all, I mean, you've got, like, what I would call a Cadillac education. You know, I mean, seriously, this is, like, very few people can say that they, you know, worked at the level you did with, you know, a guy that honestly is one of my heroes in the industry um, and, and, and the exposure you've got to just multiple different components of this. Yeah. But if you had to put your finger on it, what would you say the single most impacting thing you've done or learned in your life that actually helped you grasp permaculture was? Uh, I would say beyond a doubt, it was, I mean, obviously, I'd say my time at Zaytuna and at PRI New Zealand on, on Koanga Farm, sorry, Katari Farm, it was that living in those two places was, and it wasn't just because of the classes, it wasn't because of the lecturers, and it wasn't because of the, the students or necessarily the human human relationships. It was um, there. There's something about living day to day in a low energy system and experiencing that and having it kind of integrated into the into your bones the kind of how precious energy is when you don't have the luxury or when you're not using oil essentially petrochemical and you know um you don't can't just necessarily flick a switch and leave it on or you really have to be mindful of the water you're using or you know gee I wish we had designed this differently because, you know, this 100-meter walk up and down this hill five times a day actually, you know, takes it out. <laughs> of Little things, man, little things. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, the, it's the living it. It's the living it. And it, I find, um, yeah, it's, it's the difference between really, really appreciating when you're doing a design for someone, having lived that and really appreciating those tiny little those tiny little design elements that you might not worry about because you're like, oh, never mind, it's just one little thing. You go, no, 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 all of these things really add up. If we can save ourselves, you know, whatever amount of whatever form of energy by, you know, designing a certain way, it's worth doing it because that's, you know, that's that resilience that you're building into the system, that energy efficiency. I can understand what you're saying because even though, like, where I live, I have access to the grid and we have a well, so we have fundamentally unlimited water for especially only a three-acre property. But we started putting in some rain catchment, and we started putting in these 1,500-gallon poly tanks for all this wonderful roof rain catchment that we have available. And just doing that, we actually have more water. But then every time I'm using water now, especially when I'm using the rainwater, which I know has so much, especially with the alkalinity in my environment, has such a better quality for irrigation, all of a sudden I'm just, you know, thinking every time I turn the water faucet on uh, about the fact that water's running. Yeah. Where before I even, and like, so it's weird because I didn't take anything away. I actually added something. Yeah. So I can imagine what, if you actually take away that. Yeah. And now you're draining a pond or you're draining a tank, it has to put that up to a hyper level. Oh, man, totally. And it, it just really nails your appreciation for these sources of energy. And, I mean, I'm talking – you're talking to a guy who was raised in the most, like, middle-class white bread area on the planet. Like, it does, it does not get any more comfortable and abundant 
in a kind of conventional sense than where I'm from. So those kind of, that really needed, I really needed that. I needed that experience because, you know, I grew up in an environment. I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't raised on a farm or anything, you know. You get some permaculturalists who do have these kind of agrarian backgrounds and they seem to, you know, take to it like the duck to water in lots of ways, but I didn't have that upbringing. So, yeah, the, my time on those farms was my greatest education for sure. Yeah, you know, my family were never farmers. We were, uh, I guess, hillbillies is the right word for <laughs> it. Um, but we grew up hunting and fishing. We always maintained a, a, a really large garden, had some livestock, more of the homesteader type of lifestyle in the Appalachian Mountains, yeah. and very much uh, keen on you know wild protein. And I think part of that is part of why I resonated so much when I first heard it, heard uh, Bill talking about, you know, his original uh, views into permaculture as he was, you know, putting it together with, with David Holdrum uh, and talking about things like Tasmania and being a hunter and uh, understanding that in certain climates and, and latitudes that, that, you know, protein was extremely important. And I think that everybody comes at this from different angles, but in the end, we all kind of see the. The true humanity within it. Yeah, the vision. Yeah, absolutely. I um that 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 vision of um where we could be, I think, is what motivates me all the time. Is um you almost yeah you know you can almost get sci-fi you know trailing off into the future what it what it could be like. But yeah, I agree totally. On that note, something that happened to me when I – it was long before I even took a PDC. It was just when I learned about Earthworks, and I started watching a lot of Jeff's films and things like that. And I started to really grasp and understand something super simple like a swale, which people make complicated, but it's really one of the most simple things you could ever do. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'd be driving down the highway, and I'd look at the side of the road, and I'd just go like – I could – have trees for 20 miles right here. Oh, dude. I mean, you, I just, I can't turn the designer in my head off. Yep. You know, like I go around to a friend's house and I kind of might seem a bit distracted because I'm retrofitting it in my brain. You know, I'm looking at, and especially kind of the, the cleared, damaged, broad scale landscapes of which we have plenty of here. Um, like, for instance, where I'm from, southwestern Australia, there's this, a fairly undocumented, unspoken about deforestation event on a world scale. I think it's in like the top two or three, like rival, wow. rivaling the Amazon. They cleared this, this area of um, like dry sclerophyll woodland to make way for the wheat belt. And it's just hundreds of thousands of square hectares. Um, but uh, yeah, like you, I can't help but go near land like that and just design in my head. I think it's, it's part of the bug. Well, and we know how to do it. I mean, that's the thing. It's almost maddening that you do feel like you were talking earlier, like how much better you feel when you're at a PVC because you're surrounded by people that actually comprehend that it's possible. That's right. Because yeah. we spend our entire lives around people like, oh, that'll never work. And you're like, it's worked in so many places already. It, it's, yeah. it, it's almost like you feel like you're talking to people that are like, well, people can't fly in airplanes. Yeah, there's an airplane in the air right now, flying through the air. We've had them since 1916 or whatever it is at Kitty Hawk. Yeah. No, they don't exist. There's it's it's there it is. Right? Yeah. No, they don't. And that's how you feel sometimes. It's a, yeah, there's, there seems to be a major lag, but that's always the case, I suppose, especially with yeah. politics as it is. You know, being the lagging indicator of change. But that's why I think of, of all the things Jeff does and has done, I think that's his 
biggest kind of gift is making it visible in a simple way, especially now with the all the DVDs and videos that he's done. Because people yeah. need models. They need to be able to see it. And then they click. You know, they're like, ah, yeah, I get it. I can see it. And then they'll start listening to you a bit more, you know. And yeah, he's really he's really lifted the game in that respect. That's why I love what he's done in Desert Climates, because people see that and then they go, Well, if you can do it there, then I'm my argument about it not working anywhere else yeah. other than maybe the center of Antarctica is pretty much over. Yeah, it's kind of mooted, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that really also attracted me to permaculture was just the the very basic tenets on which it's built, the prime directive and and the three ethics. Yeah. And, you know, I teach people about survivalism, and a lot of my people come from very, very right-wing uh, political ideology. But when you tell them the only responsible thing, the, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children, well, that resonates. There's, yeah. there's, there's the, 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 their response is like, gee, I wish more people would. And then you get from there, you, you kind of move toward the ethics, care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus to the, to the, to the end of supporting the first two. Yeah. And you look at that and you say, what a simple way for everybody to kind of self police how we interact with each other in the planet. When it comes to making those ethics actually work, what do you think our biggest obstacle is? Um, people. <laughs> and their mental habits, I think. It's, uh, you know, I, I, without going too far into this end of it, I have a real intrinsic um, trust in people's hearts, I suppose. Like, often their minds get really confused and, and uh, it gets really messy. But, you know, we all... I, I believe, with a few exception of like a 0.1% of true psychopaths out there who often enough end up as political leaders for whatever reason, um, we're all we all want the same things. We all, you know, we intrinsically we want our families to be happy and healthy, and our friends to be happy and healthy, and our environments to be healthy and abundant. So, but um, it, it's habit. It's simple. It's simple things like. Just mental habit. I mean, anyone, anyone can learn how to till the soil or, you know, milk a goat or hook up some solar panels or what have you. But it's another thing to change your, you know, how, how hundreds of generations deep worth of cultural habit that may be in the way of, of us kind of getting, just getting it done. You know, I mean, anyone who's lived in a kind of community of of any sort would know that um, y y unexpected human complications has come out of left and right field. And you've got to be mature about it. I mean, there's been situations living on farms where I didn't handle things the best way. You know, I've never done anything terrible, but you just we've had the luxury. Again, it comes back to oil, I think, of not having to deal with tribe. And village, you know, we, we've had the luxury of we finish our eight hour day or nine hour work day or whatever it is. And we, we, you know, wave goodbye. And like by that time of the day, then you might be really annoyed with your coworkers, but you get to say goodbye and walk, you know, shut the door behind you. And that part of your life is gone. It's like concealed. There's like a semi permeable membrane of you in your life and you just cut it off. 
then you go home and you shut your door behind you and you've got your family to deal with. And you can kind of like get away with hiding the things that irk you and your bad habits, you know. But when you're living in these communities, in these villages, you don't really have that. You, 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 people notice and uh, it means you've got to deal with your shit and, uh, <laughs> it, yeah. in more yeah. ways than one, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. So that's I'll the challenge. You. Yeah. What I think is interesting is I don't know that there's ever been a time that humans have lived in a higher population density and, and known the people around them any less than right now. Yeah, isn't crazy. What's, it, what's weird is as soon as, I think it's almost like we're too uh, population dense in some areas because as soon as you get away from that density, that changes. So right now where I live, I have a three-acre piece. The guy behind me has 10 Guy over on the other side of me has twenty. There's another guy to his his east that has, I think, fifteen. Down the road is a guy with 160. You know, everybody's spaced out. Yeah. I know all of them. Yeah. And when I lived in the suburbs, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. I knew yeah. the guy just next to me because our kids played together, and I barely knew him because we didn't really like each other, to be honest. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Lots have been lots have been said about it, but it's true. And more and more people don't know their neighbours. But I'm the, you know, I live. I've got, you know, only half an acre, and um, the, I'm pretty lucky. I think I've got half an acre. The next door's got half an acre. They're all pretty big suburban lots. But um, I we go out of our way. There's like me and two or three other guys who um, have an appreciation for this kind of thing. If if not permaculture, then community. You know, so we go out of our way to kind of you know, just communicate with our neighbors. You know, I think it's really important, man. Communities like up there is like, you know, nearly number one. There's a, a community that I can't even, I can never find the information on it now, but I know I saw it. So I know it's real. It really does exist. I saw it on YouTube years ago. It basically, it's somewhere in California and it's not like a terrible neighborhood, but it's not a great neighborhood. It's kind of one that was a little bit in decline, but not quite there yet. The guy moved in and set up uh, a permaculture backyard. Uh, he ended up, the house next door went up for sale, and he bought it and rented it to somebody. And then he said, well, I've got this big four-bedroom house, so then he rented a room to somebody, and then they took the fence down between the two yards. Yeah. And this whole thing continued to where now this whole yard, this whole block, yeah. they've basically taken all the fences out to the streets to keep animals in and, and kids safe and all are still up. But all of the fences that actually separated the houses yeah. are gone. Yeah. And they're co-raising chickens and things like that. And everybody still has their own space, but yet everybody shares. It's yeah. a borderless space. And, then, and, it, and it seems like something that's going to be repeated more and more as neighborhoods are in decline. And these are like, this is like the only way to bring them back. Yeah. I, I, I would tend to agree. And it's a balance as well. It's between, I mean, you do, you need, you need your own space, but um, there's a lot more room for community. And you start seeing it more and more, man, like the tide has turned and developments now are take, not always, there's still a whole lot of really bad ones going on, but like there's a development in the next town from me called Witchcliffe and it's, uh, it's, it's an eco village essentially. Like 180 homes being put in wow. on, on a, on a hundred and something, I can't remember exactly, hundred and something acres on an old organic vineyard, you know, and it's, it's kind of loosely based on Davis, California. So. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. it's going to be awesome, man. And you know, you know, it's not even that. It's not even that difficult. Like it's not stuff you've got to really sweat your brow over designing. You know, it's just you know solar passive homes, 
water harvesting landscape and a whole lot of fruit trees. You know, you know. when I asked you the thing that's holding things back ethically, you said people, and I guess people are still part of this problem, but yeah. I, I don't know how closely you've been following what we're doing, but we took a real run at setting up an eco-village here in Texas, Yeah. and we had plenty of people ready to invest and do this and, and get a piece of land and have it paid for so there was no debt against it and then do a 99-year a, a lease model on lots, and we ran into so much government. Is this the, so it's like we saw the money. Is this permaethos? Correct. This is the, the first the first run at it, and yeah. we've kind of taken a new model now. But yeah. it was like it's what I've always said that like if you solve the money problem, mm. then the government will give you the the real problem because you can almost always solve the monetary problem if you can prove the validity of what you're doing. But geez, I mean, yeah. the one property we looked at in the one county, they're like, well, we need uh, access for our fire department, so you'd have to put a paved road through the entire thing. And it was like a $2 million project yeah. to put in a road that we didn't need. That, that's why the first permaculture research institute in Tagari, northern New South Wales, that they, they more or less had to walk away from it because the, the council, the government walked up to them and said, look, we've we've been counting and there's... X amount of cars coming down your driveway, you know, o- over the limit, you've got, you're going to have to pave this road and handed them like a $500,000 fee. So and they just, they I did sim- not know that. Yeah, they, they simply couldn't do it. And of course, now the, the council have gone and, pa- you know, paved it themselves or, you know, tarmacked it themselves. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. I mean, which means, I guess it'll just, you know, until these kind of nuts and bolts issues are sorted out legitimately, it'll just push it further underground or, you know, more grassroots, I guess. Yeah. I think we're back to your thing, though, with people, because we can say whatever we want about government, but in the end, the government is run by people. That's and right. what it is, is people fear change. I don't want this house to look different. I want all the houses in a nice row, and I want them all to be the same. And, well, if I want to stop using air conditioning in Texas, which I'm sure our climates are similar, yeah. then I can't build the house the way that the code says I'm supposed to build it yeah. and do it without air conditioning. I have to change the design or I'm going to die of heat exhaustion in yeah. July. Yeah, it's frustrating, man. I mean, I mean, I, it's how, me and my mates... I mean, when, when you when you start collecting around you really interesting, skilled designers and you know builders and horticulturalists and what have you, and you realise, man, if we were just left to our own devices, you know, <laughs> if we were just left alone, the things we could do would be absolutely amazing. So it can be really frustrating. Yeah, the human ingenuity is held back by other humans. Yeah. <laughs> so when. You look at moving to the pu- the future of, let's talk about somebody that we actually can get along with, plants, right? Yeah, cool. <laughs> we can get along with plants. Plants have you know set rules, and if we follow them, it works. What is the biggest thing we can be doing with that? Because there's, I, I t- we talk about edge in permaculture all the time, and you know, we talk about the edge of a contour line or the edge of a, uh, a canopy going to a, a sub-canopy to a, a, an herbaceous. But another edge is just the human plant edge. Yeah. W- w- what do we need to be doing there? Um, well, there's something I'm actually writing a paper on now, and there's a few things, but um, breeding programs, essentially. You've got, you've got hundreds and thousands of dollars a year spent on breeding a prettier petunia, you know, or a, one more colored rose or what have you. Um, 
but um, I, it's a uh, super hardy perennial staple crops. Like of all the of all the subsets of information and kind of skills and areas of study within permaculture and permaculture related things, it's it's something I think is right up there in in, in levels of importance and what it would do for humanity if we really took it seriously. So. Um, I'm sure most of the audience is familiar with the idea of perennials and staple crops, but um, for those who aren't, it's the difference between, you know, growing a field of wheat where you have to, every year you've got to till the soil and seed the soil and germinate and cultivate and um, nurse the plants while they're, they're young and, you know, spray with insecticides and fertilizers and pesticides and then harvest all at once. It's a really energy and time inefficient system, but perennial staple crops, the likes of you know nut nut trees and avocado trees and even you know herbaceous perennial staples like um, sweet potato and aracacha and things like that. The once once they're established, they are so much more robust and able to withstand knockbacks that um. And they, they produce, you know, tons a good, and especially things like the large hybrid chestnuts and even oaks, low tannin oaks, which there's more and more work being done into now. Um, these, these things, I mean, you, you, you guys have native oaks. Have you seen what, what a, um, fully grown oak tree can put out? A well established oh. oak tree. It's yeah, just, it's incredible, man. I mean, the only difference, the only reason you can't pick them up off the ground and eat them is because of high tannin levels. Correct. But there are oak cultivars where you can pick them up and eat them off the ground. But there's there's certain strains of a number of different species of oak have um, low tannin, and some of them throw out cultivars with zero tannin or close enough to it. Now, you know, I would love to be. I would love a, a few acres. You'd probably need more than a few, but to put aside to some like multi-generational, hyper-robust staple crop breeding program where we can actually give attention and time and energy to these kind of things and, and start developing strains of oak that will do that with like low tannin. Um, yeah, so I think that kind of thing is down the coming down the line. You get people more and more like grassroots people doing this off their own back, whether it be those guys in, I forget, what's the name of them? They're, they're, they're hybridizing corn with perennial grasses. Have you seen them? Yeah. 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 Try, it's I'll, pretty amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. So, um, yeah, that's just, that's just, that's one thing I see in the future of, um, humans and their relationship to plants. Yeah. Yeah, I and when you talk about oaks too, I think like it would be great to to go into to building these things to the point where they would get into productivity faster and provide acorns that we could use, but it would also be great if we could start figuring out how to use them for greater productivity for for stock feed. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, the most expensive meat on planet Earth, other than probably some rare sushi thing that I don't know about, <laughs> is uh, Hamon Ibierco de la Bolta in uh, Spain, Absolutely. which is acorn-finished, black-hoofed wild hogs that have been domesticated. It's, yeah. and, and there's a reason. It's not like it's just marketing, right? Mm. It's it, the, the quality of that meat is exceptional. It's, it's an earned premium. Yeah. And then you look around at all these people cutting oak trees down, and, and saying that it's a plant corn, 
or to plant, you know, uh, wheat or to plant barley or soy. And, and you just think, you know, pigs breed like rabbits. Uh, they grow fast and they're a higher premium product than wheat. Yeah. So you, you have to start asking yourself, like, why are we doing this? And, and th- then you get back to people in government. I mean, because a lot of this stuff, if it wasn't subsidized, we sure as heck wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, I, and that, they would find they would find every reason for you not to be able to do a system like that. But I mean, it's, and it's like in California, right? Because I'm I'm actually writing an article at the moment about Mediterranean climate permaculture systems um, because I've got a real passion for the Mediterranean climate, um, and the Dehesa system is freaking amazing, man. Like the, the those pigs. I mean, not only are they, they it's not just the acorns. But, you know, they're out there, true free range, true free range, eating grubs and insects. And, you know, there's there's the wild oregano and rosemary and sage and thyme, all these wild Mediterranean herbs that they're nibbling on that goes into their, you know, the flavors go into their meat. It's it's amazing. You look at California. I mean, here in southwestern Australia, we have a very similar climate, but completely different species. We've got eucalypts. Essentially, you look at a place like California and there, there's already prairies with oak overstory in lots mm-hmm. of places, man. It's just ripe for it. I, yeah, I, definitely. I would, definitely. I would love, I would kill for savannas of established oak trees. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing. Some people, someone asked me actually a little while back, you know, if I could do one thing, if you could just do one thing, one single thing. What would what you know to, that would be of most benefit? What would it be? And I think it would have to be plant an oak tree. I just think they're the most incredible, the most incredible plants. Well, and you know anything that lives for three hundred years or more um, is is something that's kind of a legacy. But one of the uh, things that I've shared recently, I think, hit home with a lot of people, is an old Greek proverb, and it says that. And I'm paraphrasing it now, but basically, a civilization prospers when old men plant trees under whose shade they will never sit. Yeah. That's that multi-generational, long-term thinking, man. And it's so hard to break that. The habit against that is kind of just immediacy. I mean, that's, that's something that you know, I get truly passionate about. It's the long-term, broad-scale, multi-generational thinking. And um, you know, there's a project in that. You know, if I had more time, that's something else I'd love to do, is start like a project that just... Um, raises awareness of that, you know, the 500, call it the 500 year plan or something, you know, just start, yeah. start really getting thinking, people thinking about that. Yeah, it definitely. I, I, I think that people have gotten so tied up into thinking about today and tomorrow. And then when I say tomorrow, I don't mean like, you know, a couple of years. I mean like tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's as far as they can go. They're worried about paying the bills. They're worried about making sure their kids, you know, get to, get to school and get home and make sure that their kids stay as straight and narrow as they can in their lives. And, and it's like, that's all they can do. But the reality is we've been like tricked into that belief system, honestly, that that's because people walk away from it every day. Yeah, you, you believe there's like there's no way out, and then people go, "Well, like I did it." Yeah, and then you look at the guy that did it, and it's not like he's a brilliant, uh, you know, Einstein or something like that. He's a normal guy that got tired of it, yeah. and basically it's the hamster saying, "You know what? I'm getting out of the wheel, man. 
I'm not turning your 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 tur- your turbine for you anymore. I'm gonna I'm gonna step out over here and and, and nibble uh, and 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 make babies and and have a life. Yeah, and you see that more and more, man. Like it's as if, I mean, humanity has been. I mean, and it's our own responsibility. We've done it to ourselves, you know. But we've been we've been pushed real hard, man. We've been pushed really hard in terms of being denied again. We're responsible, but being denied those things that make us thrive, you know, that we've been pushed really hard into a corner. And you can see now, there's like, there is a certain breaking point. Like things on one side are getting a lot worse, but on the other side, you can see a genuine kind of waking up, a stirring. And um, I'm really, really confident. Oh, actually, I don't know. I think long term, if, if things fall in, in our favor, even slightly, long term, I think it's almost inevitable that we're going to create something really amazing. You know, like the next two, three, five, ten, fifteen generations of humanity, of course, will have their challenges. But I think, I think we're in, we're in for a really amazing surprise for our, we're going to surprise ourselves. The issue is the transition. You know, how, comfortable or uncomfortable are we going to make the transition for ourselves because it could be pretty ugly yeah and i what's actually encouraging me is more and more people just saying screw it i'm going to go do it anyway whether i'm supposed to or not yeah and, and people are getting smart about it. like the, the biggest reason i'm held back with what i'm trying to do with perma ethos is i'm trying to do it for for far beyond for my own benefit yeah i, I don't really want anything out of it. i'm trying to do it for other people and if I were to just say in in my state of Texas, focus on something like a little ten acre piece of land, and you know put six or seven people on it or six or seven families on it uh, off grid, we can get away with a lot with that. Yeah. It's when you try to say, look, I don't want to do this for my own benefit. I want to do this for society. I want to do something bigger than myself. You know, that's when the other monkeys jump on you back and don't let you climb the pole, and they don't even know why. Yeah, and they, and they don't know why. And it's, um, it, it's, it's quite amazing. It's quite startling how much to the degree to which our thoughts have been engineered and manufactured. Because when people start blocking things and they don't even know why they're doing it, you can sit them down and have a very, very adult, clear conversation about the benefits of something. And they can even get that intellectually, but still in the back of their mind or in their hearts, there is this thing that just won't let them change. Yeah, it's not across the board, but it's, you know, it's it's prevalent. Have you seen a documentary called uh, The Century of Self by a guy called Adam Curtis? No, sounds like something I should watch. Oh, man. And anyone who's listening, just just search for it. You'll find it on YouTube, Vimeo. It's called Century of Self by Adam Curtis. And it's it's an expose on a man called Edward Bernays, who was the the nephew of Freud the um, psychologist, Sigmund Freud, and he essentially invented the, the industry of, of PR, public relations and marketing, modern marketing. And it just goes through, you know, from kind of post-depression and how our, our worldview has been manufactured, you know. Mm. It, and it, it's startling, man. And it, to, to think that, like, you and I are now kind of like third generation manufactured cultural view. I mean, to, to a greater and lesser extent, you have people who are 
born really aware of it for whatever reason and can kind of see through it. And they're usually the ones that have quite a hard time, actually, in certain parts of their lives. And then there are others who are very, very happy to go along with it. Um, and there are, you know, those who don't even realize that they're being affected. But yeah, it's, um, I recommend people check it out. It's a real eye opener. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and there's a lot of things that I, I think people are starting to, to get a, a grasp of from work like this. Um, when you look at the, the documentary Hope in a Changing Climate with what was done on the Lost Plateau in uh, in China. Oh, that's amazing. That's another one of those things that you look at. And no matter what you say, you can't argue with those kinds of results. Or The work done in Africa where you had these, these washes that never had water running down them other than during a major rain event any time in living history that in six years become a running river. Yeah. Um, it's it, it, it's incontrovertible. There's nothing you can say that takes away from that. And sooner or later, people with with the Internet now where you can see these things and everybody can see this, start to go, well, if they can do that there. Yeah, totally. We have all this wonderful prosperity and technology here. Why aren't we doing this? Yeah, these low-energy human-scale solutions that you don't need dudes in lab coats and $100,000 machines to do. You can just do it. And uh, speaking of John, John Liu, who, who, who did the documentary of um, the Lois Valley Plateau Project, which, by the way, is probably my number one favorite thing in the world. Like what they did there, man. Those, yeah. those before and after photos are just incredible. But um, John is spearheading a, um, a movement at the moment. I'm actually, I help administer the Facebook page for it. It's um, research and training facilities for ecological restoration. I think I got that right. It, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's this massive discussion going on now. Like, um, you know, like myself, for instance, I've had to kind of construct my own curriculum as I've gone along. I knew, I knew in 2002 or something, like I wanted to do this. So, you know, one of the things I did was go to look and see what conventional training options there are. And there kind of aren't. There's kind of bits and pieces, but there's no, you can't go and do a degree in, you know, holistic land regeneration and, and human settlement systems or whatever. If, you know, if you even did want to go to uni, but. It, it says, it says something about how interested we are as, as a species in doing that then, doesn't it? Well, it, it absolutely. And we haven't been, but there's this, <laughs> there's this discussion going on now. And, um, I can I can give you a link to put in the show notes where it's um, this uh, yeah discussion going well if we had if we had training centres devoted to to these things what would it look like what would they look like it, here we are it's um I always I always forget the name of it exactly but it's research training and innovation centres for ecological restoration on Facebook it's quite a mouthful. But it's a really interesting discussion. You know, what would the curriculum look like? What would the units look like? And it's um, it's actually quite a lot of fun thinking. Well, yeah, okay. If we if we had dedicated training facilities, what would be involved? Um, yeah, I recommend people go check it out and have their say because it's pretty cool. On that note, I mean, I have a lot of people that want to build a future for themselves in permaculture as a career. Um, one guy. Um, he's doing some things for me as well. He's a truck driver. So he's picking up some tanks for me in return for me, letting his, his son who's in his teens come to my workshops for free. 
Yeah. And and a couple of years ago, he was talking about going to college and asked me at a workshop, you know, what what would you recommend that I take? And I'm like, probably something like organic chemistry or something, because don't go anywhere near the ag department. Um, what advice would you give for youngsters interested in a permaculture uh, career or vocation? Okay, well, two things you, that that aren't necessarily completely separate. One, you can like I've got I've got really good, there's there's a bit of a backlash going on at the moment toward un, conventional university training, and I can understand why, but it, it's getting a bit of a bad name because it's compartmentalized and there's this kind of allegiance to the establishment, and you know uh, they're they're usually despite waving the flag of progressiveness they're actually usually towing the line but um i i've got friends who for instance went and did a bachelor in science majoring in ecology right and then once they had done that then they went on to do permaculture that gave them an amazing background in in ecology and how the world actually functions, the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle, how carbon works, how organisms, in, you know, trophic levels and all those things. Quite very academic, obviously, but still, still really, really applicable. Then on the other side, you can do what I did, right? And that is just see the world like a classroom, you know, and every time, every time you have, you come to a crossroads and you have an opportunity to make a new decision, you just err on the side that's going to give you the most uh, experience and beneficial exposure. You know, like you just, you know, you, you need to get a new job. Well, okay. What are the options? There's, there's three things. You could either go and, you know, make coffees at a cafe. You could go and be a delivery person for whatever, or you could go and do a gardening round or we'll choose, choose the gardening round. It'll give you like good gardening experience. You know, I've had, I've had a dozen or more jobs in the last kind of five years, just moving around and everything. And I'm, I've, I've, I've built up an awesome skill set just by doing that. Whether it's you know working in arbor culture and you know, getting better at using you know chainsaws and tree surgery or um, retail nurseries or you know whatever it may be, but it's also a really good idea. Permaculture being so across the board and so generalist. Um, is is to have a good grasp of all the different systems and how they fit together. But I think it pays as well to have a, a skill set or an area of study in which you try to master to a certain degree. So David Holmgren always talks about being a jack of all trades, but a master of one. And I think that's really good advice, man. Like if, if, if you can have a, a good understanding of all the different areas and how they fit together, and to be able to, you know, get along in them, but you can have one area of expertise that you can then offer other people. That's, that can be your thing, whether it's animal husbandry or forestry or, you know, the, you know, appropriate technology or whatever, whatever it may be. Yeah, I'll agree. And I, I think, you know, when, when I hear you talk, it opens me up to more things than a person that, let's say a person that's right for a university, because not everybody is. I wasn't, doesn't sound like you were either. But there are people that are. And like another thing that I think people could go into that would really fit well with permaculture would be botany. Right. I know you're kind of a plant geek and, yeah. and a person with a botany background would be able to do a lot of, you know, and, and then running projects 
and doing education, but also being exposed to all these different plant varieties would be really tailor-made for doing some of this developmental breeding work that you're talking about. Oh, totally. And then the, the other one is, 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 is engineering. Oh, A dude. person with yeah. an engineering degree and an understanding of earthworks could transform nations. Absolutely. That's a really good call. Engineering, yep. And uh, coupled with, you know, like, like an, an understanding of engineering and landscape ecology, essentially, landscape and geology, um, and, and how water works with landscape, and then having an understanding of, you know, the, the more biological and ecological side of things, absolutely, yeah. And, and project management. I mean, you can be the best... You can you can you can be the best botanist in the world, and you can have a really really good idea of how a landscape should be um, remediated in terms of what where you put a dam and where you put swales and where you put gabions and limonias and all these things. But then you can get out in the field and have absolutely no idea how to direct a group of people and make a project like get in the Correct. ground. Yeah, so that's something. But, but that's where the teamwork thing comes in because. You get somebody like me that knows how to run people and understands earthworks, and I want to go in and do major earthworks. Well, you're not a professional engineer. You might drown the town, whatever. Yeah. If you take a professional engineer and put him alongside of somebody like me, and he also has an understanding of, of, of these things, then we can actually get the work done because we have a, a, a PE to sign off on, on the work. Yeah. And frankly, once I get over a certain size in anything – I want to check with somebody else anyway. I'll throw little one-acre dams in. I'll throw in, you know, a few hundred feet uh, here and there of swale. But you start getting into these major terraforming things, I need somebody to run the numbers on it because I will only trust my gut and my vision so far anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I guess there's, there's only so far you can stretch yourself in being a master of however many different things. So I guess that's important too, not to, not to feel like you have to master every little thing, you know. Probably send, send yourself crazy in permaculture. What do you think is a good way for people to learn a lot about horticulture and botany uh, uh, from a permaculture angle without having to come through? Because I talk about a botany degree and all, but I mean, jeez. Yeah. You right. know, and it's, it's actually fascinating, though. You start reading plants and species and families and all. You start to realize the interconnectedness. But in the end, a lot of people just want to know, well, what the hell do I plant? Yeah, well, and you don't have to be a plant nerd like I am. Like, you, you don't have to know necessarily the latin name of every different thing and you know all the interest intricacies and whatnot but i love it it's my thing so um and and i've gone through conventional training in horticulture i've got a diploma in horticulture which was like two and a half years training right and within that i had to sit through these nauseating units like occupational health and safety industry standards like how to answer a telephone correctly you know just stupid time wasting things plus it was not it was from a conventional angle you know they, they weren't interested so much in the ethnobotanical side you know the plants weren't appreciated for their the human plant relationship you know what what can this plant offer us what can we offer it well how does it work with other plants with other animals so it was always in the back of my head i was like dang you know i'd love to design a course just for that and it was actually in discussion email back and forth with john lou i was like about these you know research and education and training centers i was like you know i'm going to do it so i've been writing a curriculum called introduction to permaculture plants and it's going really well um chugging along 
and it, it does that. It's 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 an introduction to the world of horticulture and botany and all the different angles, whether it's you know forestry or aquaponics or just herb gardens or whatever. But from the angle of permaculture and other kind of land regener- regenerating. Um, and is that in angles. progress or is that available? It's in progress, dude. Because it, you know, I thought, ah, oh, this will it'll be no big deal. But it's it's yeah. it's taken a while, man. And then and to figure out, you know, how much of it is really um, academic and head heady stuff, and like how much of it do I need really hands on practical, and how much you know I'm I'm trying to think for the beginner, you know. So, um, but um. It's coming along really nice. As a at the moment, the table of contents I've just opened it up in front of me is uh, overview of plants in a permaculture context, terminology, binomial nomenclature, families and their characteristics, plants and their energy transactions, root symbionts, succession and forest ecology, uh, categories and functions, soil and subterranean ecology, um, organic on-site mineral sources. And then it goes into the more like hands-on nuts and bolts of propagation, nursery setup, seed saving, how to plant a tree. Sounds simple, but some people don't know it. Um, and different organic horticultural tips. So at the moment, I'm just finalizing it and trying to figure out exactly how to, you know, m- make that dance work between the practical and the kind of theoretical. But it should be ready sometime mid-year. Okay. Well, stay in touch with us because when it's available, I'd like that to make that available to... Uh to my audience, I'm sure many of them would be interested in it. I know I am already. If you had it, I'd buy it right now. Yeah, well, I'm I'm, think, I'm thinking I'll be running courses based on it, and I'm, I'll put it in an ebook and um, yeah, to get it out to people. Yeah, definitely. Cool. What, what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned from all of your traveling in the capacity as a permaculturist? Um, I think it's that. Firstly, that this kind of this this passion that you see people having for this movement, it's it's global and it's grassroots, man. Because everywhere I've gone, there are people just humming off this stuff, and it doesn't matter who they are. They could be, you know, triple PhD doctorates from Oxford, you know, who find themselves in a brand new world, getting their hands dirty purely from the passion, or you know borderline homeless people from you know wherever who have you know dragged themselves out of the gutter to do this and it's 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 the grassroots nature of it and also that outside of countries like the US and Australia who some people would argue otherwise but have still got a fair bit left to lose before people are ready to make major changes um in worlds in parts of the world where they have already lost a great deal and they're ready, willing and able to, to, to um, make these changes. It is happening. There's these, um, there's amazing projects going on, particularly in the Arab States, funnily enough, you know, it's, you know, Morocco, Jordan, Yemen, um, these kind of places where Jeff does a great deal of work there. I think like in Morocco, their, their official agricultural um, position now is a holistic permaculture one and there's massive transitions going on um, to to you know for broad scale land regeneration with human needs in mind um, so there's there are amazing projects around the world and they're very accept- accessible to people like ourselves with with adequate you know passion 
um, and the, of course the ability time-wise to go and check them out or get involved. But if you do, I recommend it. It'll change your life. It's amazing. Yeah, I think we're extremely lucky or maybe cursed at the same time in the United States with just the amount of land we have and, and the amount of flat, level, easy-to-manage land with reasonable rainfall we have. Yeah. Because if we had less land and had to do more of our cultivation on slope, we would have already desert, desertified the whole nation. Yeah. Like, people are getting away with what they're doing in states like Iowa because everything's pretty flat. Um, and erosion's reduced, even in spite of the fact that we're exporting tons of topsoil per acre per year. Still, with all the trees, the we have more wilderness left in the United States than they do in Africa. And and I, I think that people don't realize how much that buffers the abuse that we're committing and how much worse it really could be. And in your country, you're not as buffered, and you see the degradation a lot faster, I think, in a lot of areas. Yeah, we're, well, we're not buffered. Well, I mean, Australia was an incredibly fertile if you know the soils arguably weren't, but in terms of ecology, an incredibly robust and fertile ecology. It's just what happened was we have, and it's even still occurring to this day now, where you've got people insisting on Western and Northern European agricultural and cultural techniques upon a landscape that in no way resembles their homeland. I mean, Australia is the most anomalous, bizarre place a European has ever been. I tell you, like, <laughs> it's the flattest landscape. It's the oldest. It's the most mineral, minerally depleted. It, um, its hydrology is completely different to anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. Its flora and its fauna are all completely different. So we've gone and, you know, insisted on these agricultural practices and just... We have trashed the place, man, in like a hundred... You guys have a real problem with salt, too. I think that's something oh, that we dude. don't have much of a problem in most of this country with. So most people in this country have no comprehension of how how the, how the hell do you have salt in the middle of a field? Well, well <laughs> there's a whole way that that works out, yeah. but trust us, it does, and it, it destroys things. I, I flew... I mean, I've always heard about the salt, and this this is like that, that wheat field deforestation event I was talking about. Like I flew from the east coast to the west coast and looked out the window. And, I mean, you know when you're up, I don't know how many feet you're flying. I'm not, was it 12,000? I don't know what an airliner flies at. But you, you, you know that when you're looking down and you see a dot, it's probably a mountain, you know, like it, your perspective has completely changed. But the, the vast, the huge vast areas below me, that were just a kind of mosaic pattern of salt. It was unbelievable, man, because underneath Australia, we have a water table, but it's salty for whatever reason. We have a salt water table in lots of places. Um, and the removal, the, the, the broad-scale removal of vegetation, just mean it, it simply, it, it, it's no longer locked up in the bodies of, of the plants. I mean, there are different... There are different um, competing theories as to salinity. Some people say it comes down in the rain at like six parts per million, and but more and more people are thinking that it's just it's always there. It's just it's usually locked up in the body tissue of plants, and when you remove mm -hmm. the plants, it's got nowhere to go. But we've yep. got we've got salt issues bad, man. Like um, it is it is um, it is unbelievable the expanses expanses of land that are completely unusable now by most forms of life, let alone humans. And it's a matter of um, 
And this is another case, man, where the conservation and land management kind of angles people. There are really cool ones amongst them, and then there are those who are really hardline, and they just insist only endemic species. If whatever we plant, it's it's got to be endemic, not just native, not just even endemic. The seed has to have been sourced from within, you know, uh. like a hundred, you know, like a a k, a kilometer away. So we're but but to to remediate that kind of damage on that kind of scale that's so intense, the only thing you're going to be able to plant are those, you know, you know, seriously salt-hardy coastal, in lots of cases, shrubs and trees to just begin that biological process of succession back into that, those badlands. Yeah, the native plant Nazis, right? I like what Bill Mollison said. I use 100% native species. They're all native to planet Earth. That's right, man. That's right. <laughs> So, and we screw, that's the thing is we screwed these places up. It's not like using these species is totally out of line at this point because it's not like that ecosystem is what it was when we started jacking around with it. It's, it's completely altered at this point. And then we have to figure out, well, what, what remediation is necessary? And if it doesn't happen to be a local species, maybe that's because it wasn't like that when we jacked with it. And now we need that species there to fix that problem. Exactly. You're not even, even if you had all of the, you know, native species to put back into that spot, they, that is no longer the environment that they came from because the species that were there, you know, are designed to germinate and grow and be nursed in a woodland environment, not yeah. in a completely exposed, high evaporation, high wind, super salina, um, salty environment. It's, it's a different environment. Yeah, you've got to you, start the process of secession over from the beginning at that point. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, like, but but my sister-in-law, for instance, she's a freshwater biologist who does a lot of um, water remediation and working with water in you know uh, urban design and, and all those kind of things. And she think she says that slowly it's coming around within their field. They're like, no, no, it's just whatever works. We're going to start using yeah. whatever works, which which is cool because like fifty years ago. The a hundred years ago, the settlers, colonial settlers in some areas of Australia, were subsidised to clear the land, right? And then they started noticing erosion and degradation, so they were subsidised to the plant willows along the the creeks as like a riparian buffer to hold the hold the banks together. And then, and, and they do a wonderful job. I'm a huge fan of willows. I I, I love that the willows and poplars. They're amazing. But then in the last kind of two or three, well, more than that, five, ten years, there's been this war on willows and they've, they've been declared a noxious weed and they're doing this and they're doing that. And now the government is subsidizing farmers to remove willows off their property. So they were subsidized to remove the native land and they were subsidized to plant willows. Now they're being subsidized to remove the willows. And there's hundreds of kilometers of creek and river line around rural, rural Australia now that every, where they were being held together by willow, they've now been removed. And every time there's a decent rainfall, you're losing, you know, tons and tons of topsoil again. Don't you sometimes just feel like the people that caused the problem should stop trying to fix it? Yeah. Like they should just let let people that didn't screw it up in the first place take over now. Sometimes I feel like with government, a little bit of my anarchist comes out, and I'm like, you know, adults are talking now. You just You just... You're done. You don't need to be doing this anymore uh, because it seems like every decision is based on money. And it's not that money's a bad thing, but you can make money and do the right thing 
But generally, you can always make a little bit more by doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And, and it, it seems like if we can get to a point where we can be satisfied with, with sufficient return, then, then actually, long term, we actually will have more of everything. But yeah. at this point, we have to kind of back off it a little bit and say, look, we can't keep squeezing out. It, it's actually really telling of, you know, the, the original intent of the third ethic before some people altered it, that, you know, uh, the, the fair share concept is you can only squeeze so much out of an acre. You can only ask so much out of that acre, and if you overtax that land, it can't sustain itself. No, I mean, and then that whole that whole discussion about the third ethic. I mean, that they're, they're very different things: fair share and return of surplus. But it, um, Holmgren, I heard a really interesting um, discussion with David Holmgren the other day, and he always he's got a really good understanding of the kind of energetic baseline skeleton system of of the world and um it's just they it's just a from the top down in most kind of official you know institutions they just don't understand the true energy accounting of of where we are it's just they it's like this this fiat system you know based on perpetual growth and interest it's like when, when you when you describe the nuts and bolts of that to someone you know, you have to get out the finger puppets and, and yeah, kind of, yeah. but, but then it, I don't know, to me, it's the simplest thing, but the minute you open your mouth, you're, you're just a hippie, you know, but, it, <laughs> but, it, but it's the most simple, basic, you know, mathematics that I don't know. This is, that's one of those blocks there, you know, that's one of those weird blocks that people have the trouble getting through. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's interesting. Well, hey, Byron, man, I've really had a great time talking with you today. Uh, we've more than kicked off an hour here, so we, we need to wrap up. You want to tell folks about your website so they can uh, follow you and uh, get your stuff as it becomes available? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's www.oaktreedesigns.com.au. Um, that's got all the information you'll need. Uh, there'll be the course outline on there available probably mid-year. But you can contact me through that site, and of course, that's my that's my um, site for my consultancy and design company. So, if anyone's interested, just yeah, please give me a, give me a bell. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks for being with us today, and thanks for getting up so early in the morning to do it. That's cool, man. Thank you. The sun's up now. <laughs> <laughs> and folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearco today with Byron Joel, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.